1: Coming to you tonight from the under-construction wing of the Brewster Building here on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Not, however, speaking for the university or the crews outside who have taken a break for the evening with the power tools that have been going all day here uh, in the, the summer of 2023. It's June 2023, and time to get work that on campus you can't do when the... Classes are in session, but I am not speaking for those classes or anything. And likewise, my guest speaks only for herself, as we always do on Civil War talk radio. Well, it is uh, summer, baseball, Major League Baseball is underway. College baseball, I guess, is still going, but the ECU Pirates are out of it. They didn't win the regional. They had a good, uh, good season, though. And now it's time to look ahead to football. And uh, as listeners to the show know, my longtime loyalty in football is with my alma mater, the University of Michigan. But I support my employer's team, the East Carolina Pirates. Um, my my blood runs blue, but I've developed a shiny outer carapace of purple and gold for the Pirates. Uh, what? I mentioned this because I purchased my tickets for the first game of the year for which team you ask. The answer is for both. They are playing each other in the opening game in September. Uh, and uh, I'll be there in Ann Arbor in the big house with 110,000 of, of my closest friends uh, sitting in the ECU seats because I bought my tickets through the Pirate Club, but I'll be with some uh, friends and relatives who are Michigan fans, likewise. It'll be an interesting experience. And to make this relevant to our topic of Civil War history, uh, Jim Harbaugh took his Michigan football team to Gettysburg uh, last month, uh, beginning of May, to visit the uh, uh, the battlefield to learn, learn history, learn something. Uh, one of the tweets the Michigan football program put out was headed, Come on, you Wolverines. As General Custer said to his Michigan cavalry at that battlefield, so uh, everything comes together. The the, uh, the other big sports story this week, just a quick aside, was that the two big golf associations merged uh, yesterday. Uh, the PGA and and the group that's paid for by Saudi Arabian blood money. Uh, I just want to say that I, if, if Saudi Arabia or any other enterprise that supported terrorism and murder of journalists and so on ever tried to sponsor Civil War talk radio, I would do as the PGA has done for the last 18 months and absolutely reject such an immoral and unacceptable offer. Uh, Unless the money was good enough, in which case I would emulate the PGA and betray all my principles and accept it uh, in a heartbeat. Uh, So that's what I've learned from watching sports last week. Quick word uh, about what's coming up on the show. Next week will be the annual live from almost live from Gettysburg program. The Civil War Institute will be meeting. I'll be there. I'll be speaking next Tuesday. I'll be Uh, talking to you if you're there, hopefully you will be, and uh, interviewing people I meet there who are interesting, recording those, and we'll put those uh, into a show to be played next Wednesday. We'll follow that up with our last show of the season, uh, June 21st. Ty Sedgley will be here. He's the author of Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. That should be... uh, an interesting conversation and uh, a quick note, uh, a former guest on the show, Joe Goodbody appeared here some while back uh, to talk about uh, Parker H. French, the Kentucky Barracuda. And Joe sent me an email recently about his uh, getting the book republished, uh, making it available to a wider audience. So if you didn't get a chance to hear that show, go back and listen to it. uh, Consider uh, having a look at that book, it was certainly interesting. I found it uh, uh, interesting and enlightening. You can learn about everything on the show from www.impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War Talk Radio website. You can get the uh, uh, the upcoming schedule. You can get links to past shows, over 600 of them now, as we finish up our 19th year of podcasting. The Podcasts that existed before there was such a thing as podcasting. And uh, you can also buy the merch. You can get your Eastern Carolina University t shirt, which you can wear to a University of Michigan versus ECU football game, and nobody will know what you're talking about if you do that. And you can get Civil War Talk Radio t shirts as well, uh, always in good taste uh, in any mixed gathering. Well, I don't normally rant and rave, but let me try one on for you here. Kids today, they are not being taught to write cursive anymore. Why, if you're my age, born in the 50s or 60s, we had to learn that stuff. Some of you are listening and nodding. right? We we know what's wrong with the world today. Well, actually, it's true kids don't learn cursive anymore. But to that I say, Amen. It is one of the best things that has happened in my teaching career by getting rid of cursive writing. Blue books are now legible. When students write their essays in class, I can read them. They print them. They print fast, but they print legibly. Ten years ago, half of them would come in with a cursive scrawl that was indecipherable and, and utterly uh, uh, frustrating. That's done. So, uh, if you're one of the old fogies who says, why don't kids learn cursive? Uh, Come here and read blue books and you'll join me in saying hooray for the end of cursive writing. Uh, Except as a historical tool. One day historians will have to learn to read cursive the way they have to learn to read French or German if they are studying those countries. But not the case. Uh, During the Civil War, cursive was the only way to communicate, no keyboards. Uh, you were severely out of luck if you could not write well, and that brings us to tonight's book called Left Armed Corps, writings by amputees, Civil War veterans. It's edited by Allison M. Johnson, who is our guest tonight. Professor Johnson, are you there?
2: Yes, I'm here.
1: Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. It's an honor to be here, and I, I once had the misfortune of being a UCLA fan surrounded by USC fans. And I oh. hope that your experience in Michigan is slightly less awkward and horrifying than mine was.
1: Well, I I'd I say as a Wolverine, I've gone, I went to the Michigan Michigan State game uh, several times. Uh, once at State, and, and I know what you're talking about. It, it's pretty rough. But I'll be wearing my maize in blue, even though I'll be sitting in the pirate seats. Um, and I'll uh, have 110,000 on my side. I'm not worried about that. Uh, my friends from Greenville who go to the game, they'll they will be the, in the minority uh, severely. And right now, the Las Vegas line on the game is like Michigan by 36. So it's, it's not really. But let me knock on wood, if you're a Michigan fan out there listening, you remember the horror. I won't even name the team or the year, but the year we lost to a North Carolina team. Not going to talk about that. Uh, never be overconfident. Let's talk about history instead. Um, this book is fascinating. Uh, let me start by asking uh, a quick bit about your day job. On the back it says you are uh, assistant professor of English at San Jose State University. Uh, but you've written about the Civil War uh, before. Is 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 the Civil War a long-time interest of yours?
2: Yeah, I I often jokingly say, but it's probably actually true, that this all started when my dad, an American historian, uh, let me watch Dances with Wolves at a young age, probably Ah. too young. And for the rest of my adolescence, I always pictured that initial scene in which Kevin Costner's character is he, he comes to in a surgeon's tent and I pictured him seeing like bloody stumps. That's not actually mm-hmm. what happens. I've rewatched it. The stumps are covered up, but he, he feels that the threat of amputation, of losing his leg is so horrible that he's going to pull on his boot and ride his horse in front of the Confederate lines uh, in, rather than have, it be, have his, lose his leg by amputation. I just remember as a child really being curious about that choice what was so horrible, obviously it's, it's not a great thing to lose a limb. Uh, It's a traumatic Mm -hmm. experience, but to choose possible death over that, I was always fascinated by that. And like I said, I grew up with a historian for a father. So I grew up on stories of, um, of the civil war of American history. And that basically came to fruition when I was a double major in English and history at UC Riverside Uh, and did an honors thesis on civil war literature poetry, hmm. and then chose to um, do my dissertation on civil war literature. So it has sort of been since, I mean, I, I do sort of credit Kevin Costner. Thank goodness for him.
1: Well, that's, that's a good, good place to start. Certainly. Uh, so this left-handed archive, the the left-arm corps, these soldiers who wrote. Um, I, I recall seeing these papers when I was doing research at Library of Congress uh, in the 1990s on a different topic, and there were there was some material in there that was was relevant. But I at the time I made a note. I said that is the weirdest thing. Someone's got to publish that someday. Uh, how did you come across this, this collection?
2: Well, I was also there doing research not on this particular collection, and I had talked to some of the librarians there. They knew what I was doing. They brought out Whitman's Walking Stick uh, wow. so I could look at that. That was very nice. And then they mentioned that I might want to look at this collection since I was looking specifically for writing by soldiers, and I had mm-hmm. I had been to VMI, I had been to UNC, I had been to different archives looking for for those resources and so i just happened upon it and as as i had a similar reaction to you like this is amazing i can't what is this and uh i i focused on it in a chapter in my dissertation i thought it was but all along i was hoping that i would one day be able to publish a collection just like born had hoped to but never was able to do um
1: well, let's let's maybe start with with Bourne himself or, of where these these came from. Um, who was William Olin Bourne?
2: Well, he was a volunteer and a chaplain in the Central Park Hospital in New York during the war. He was an editor. He was a poet, not a very uh, not a particularly good one. It doesn't seem though. He did mm-hmm. publish some writing for children that were that was very popular, and he wrote on education. And, uh, but basically having volunteered in the hospitals and met many of the men coming, coming to the hospital to receive their prosthetic limbs, he started to recognize this group of unique veterans who were learning how to write with their left hands after losing their, their right arms or their right hands or just use of their right limbs during the war. So he, he had kind of autograph books that they're called reminiscent books at the time and soldiers that he encountered would sign them and thank them to thank him for his service and for what what he did for them and he would sometimes note in the margins that this was written by the left hand so he's recognizing this new group of veterans and was interested in helping them readjust to civilian life and to enter the workforce and he saw penmanship as the way as the way to do that.
1: Now, penmanship is very important in the 19th century. There's no typewriter yet, no keyboard in 1865, is that right?
2: Right. Right. Well, and I wanted to stand up for penmanship a little bit, cursive a little nah. bit when you were talking. My mom taught third grade and had to teach many a child how to write in cursive and she does not miss doing that at all. but uh, it is a beautiful art when you look at yes. uh, many of these entries and ornamental penmanship was a, a special hobby at the time. Uh, we've, lo- we've completely lost all that and I still have a hard time reading students uh, print printing so you know uh, and I well, was once commended for my beautiful penmanship. I'll just say well, that on, a, on an exam. <laughs> Well,
1: you and I are, are opposite poles, and I, I once had an exam handed back to me by a professor who said, you're going to have to come to my office and read this to me. Um, but we're going to take a short break now and come back to find out more about this, uh, this group of soldiers, and especially about what they had to say. Uh, it, the book is called The Left-Armed Corps, Writings by Amputee Civil War Veterans. It's edited by our guest tonight, Allison M. Johnson. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live. The leader in Internet Talk Radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to ProkopovichG at ecu.edu. That's P R O K O P o-w-i-c-z-g at e-c-u dot e-d-u. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Allison M. Johnson, editor of The Left Armed Corps, writings by amputee Civil War veterans. We've been talking about William Oland Byrne, uh, who during the war met many of these veterans who'd lost the use of their right arms or lost the right arm entirely, and uh, at some point decided to sponsor a penmanship contest to encourage them to learn to write with their left hand. How, how many left-hand uh, or, or right-arm wounded people were there? Uh, how many fit in this category is what I'm trying to ask.
2: The I think that about 16,000 amputations were recorded um, mm-hmm. by the Union Army, and most, I mean, there were more, right, if you just picture how people hold a rifle, uh, mm-hmm. most people are right-handed at the time. Only 2% of the population we think in the 19th century was left-handed, in part because of stigma. Mm-hmm. And even now today, it's about 10%. So if you picture how most people hold a rifle, uh, your, el- your right arm is sticking out more uh, mm-hmm. in your elbow. So it makes sense that there would be more right-arm wounds. And if you look at the medical history, um, the 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 big compendium of all of the wounds, they spent a lot of time mm-hmm. talking about all the various places that you could be wounded in the right arm and have it amputated. So uh, about 333 men, su- or exactly 333 men submitted to the contest. There were, of course, many more men who could have. Mm-hmm. And some of them wrote, that in their town there was, uh, they were the one. They were the man who had had lost his um, his right arm, but there was another man who had lost his left arm, and they had two friends who had lost their legs. So it was, though, other wounds were much more prevalent than um, amputations. They were very apparent and and <clears throat> visible, and so I think that lent itself to this formation of a. Unique subset, like of, of comrades in arms or in arm, if the pun could be an excuse. Be excused. There's too many puns that I can make with all of this stuff, and I have to hold myself back. But many of them use puns as well to talk about their their new situation, losing losing one of their arms or their hands.
1: That, I noticed that throughout that they're the uh, well. We'll talk about the things that these people had to say. Uh, just focusing on the contest again for a moment. So. How, how? I mean, today you would put something on the internet, I suppose. How? How did Bourne publicize this contest for 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 soldiers to to write into him?
2: So, my first book is about Civil War print culture, fo- focusing primarily on newspapers and periodicals. And one thing mm-hmm. that becomes very evident when you spend a lot of time reading newspapers and periodicals published during the Civil War is how much republication there is and how you'll re- you will read—you can read one poem in one newspaper published in New York, and then it shows up a few weeks later in Missouri or in Minnesota, for example. Mm-hmm. So Bourne was the publisher of The Soldier's Friend. I should have mentioned that um, at the beginning. He started publishing it in the hopes of supporting the, vet- the veteran population, but also the, the soldiers at the time during the war, printing official War Department bulletins, and providing employment information for men who had been wounded. So he initially announced the penman, the first penmanship contest in 1865 and encouraged other editors. So whenever he would publish the, and he published it many times in his own paper, but he would say, please circulate, please publish. So it, the news of it traveled. And I was able to find, uh, the notices of the contest in other newspapers a few days or a few weeks or a few months later. And so news spreads all the way to California and uh, all the way down to the the loyal citizens of Kentucky and up into the, the Midwest. And so it spreads far and wide. However, the most submissions come from New York, which makes sense because that's where Bourne is and he also interacted with many of the men who later submitted. So I, I could I saw them their their autographs in his reminiscence book, and then I got to read their their submissions to the contest. So he obviously had personal connections with some of these men, and they they acknowledge it. They say, "I'm your right your left arm soldier friend," or they they've had mm-hmm. some previous contact. But yeah, that's that's how he he publicizes it in that way, and the first uh contest has about 270 people (laughs) who answer the call and unfortunately the second contest doesn't doesn't get as many um submissions when he holds it a year later but the first one he held an exhibition advertising the the specimens as they were called of penmanship and there were two exhibitions one in New York and one in Washington DC and lots of people came and saw them. so yeah he didn't have social media but he did a pretty good job of of spreading the word about the contest and then after the fact of the resulting corpus of literature that that came from these submissions and he publicized those as well.
1: well you, you described your reaction to seeing these papers and I had the same reaction. And I'm sure many other researchers over the years have had it. And, and that's what the visitors to those exhibitions must have had. You look at these pieces of writing, and some of them are beautifully written, like far better than I could do mm-hmm. uh, with my right arm. And I'm right-handed. Mm-hmm. Uh, others are, are pretty well scrawled, and, and they're working on it. But but some of them do write a, a beautiful hand. And and uh, the idea that you you could train yourself to do that, it seems very, very... Victorian self-help-ish.
2: <laughs> yeah, well that was the whole point of the contest was <laughs> to prove to these men that they even if they couldn't engage in manual labor and couldn't go back to the farm and push a plow as readily as they were able to prior to the war, that they could find employment using their penmanship. And many of them many of them did, but really born as very much into this rhetoric of rehabilitation that the the left arm and the left hand will successfully replace the right the right arm and the right hand the people who come to the exhibitions comment on the citizen soldieries this is there it proves how unique they are the, the, the Union soldiers and their resilience um, and their ability to r- recuperate. And as you said, to have this self-discipline to teach themselves or in some cases to go to business schools uh, and learn left-handed penmanship because that was one of the topics at business and commercial schools at the time. So some of them actually got instruction in that and and many of them say, well, I'm not going to be as good as the guys who are studying this at school or I'm not going to be as good as the guys who lost their arms in 1861 because I just lost mine at uh at Spotsylvania or Appomattox, or you know, later in the war, so um, most of them are very humble about their penmanship, even though, as you said, it is way better than anything we could produce, and makes me suspicious that some of them were actually left-handed prior to losing their right arms, but had been forced to write with their right their right hands because, as I said before, left-handedness was considered sinister, which is where we. We get that word from the left, uh, for the mm-hmm. lat from the Latin for left. Um, so, yeah, they make some of them make some very impressive uh, submissions. Others, like you said, not so much either because they've had less time to practice, or because they lost more some of their left hand as well. Some men <laughs> uh, lost parts parts of their left hands. Ah, uh, Lewis Horton lost both of his hands and wrote with his mouth. So uh, he he receives special recognition, but obviously mm. that's not going to be as as legible as the others.
1: yeah, the idea that some of them might have originally been left-handed it brings up the question of rules. Um, mm-hmm. in any contest, there's there's a tendency for people to maybe uh, maybe shade the rules some. Uh, what were the rules of this contest? First of all, were they just writing writing their names? Were they writing uh, copying material, writing original material? Tell, tell us how how the contest worked
2: Well, fortunately for me, most of them chose to do original material, though copying selections was pretty common at the time. People would copy poems that they liked into their commonplace books. but most and the first the first contest did stipulate it can be either original, or it can be selected. So you could write something about your experience or you could copy just to copy a poem or something to show us your, your penmanship. Um, Obviously they, they stipulated that the men had to have been right-handed prior to losing their right arm or the use of their right arm uh, that they had to have been a soldier for the union. Obviously they were not going Mm -hmm. to invite any rebels to participate and they needed to list their regiment, where the battles they had fought in, and where they had been wounded, and where when they had had their limb amputated or, or operated on. And in the the weeks following and months following the announcement of the contest, Bourne published letters to to the editor written by soldiers who were concerned about what you had mentioned. Are people going to cheat? Are people going to mm-hmm. present this as their left-handed writing, even if they they didn't actually lose their right arm or they were already left-handed for the first contest. He says, this is, don't worry about that. That's not going to matter because I'm going to publish the entire list of contestants. And that will, that will prevent any imposition on the part of, of phonies basically. <laughs> but interestingly for the second, the second contest, he does ask for affidavits. So they have to send an mm-hmm. affidavit signed, by public notaries that say this guy, yes, he fought, he was enlisted at this time. He lost his arm at this. And they, it even stipulates, you know, where the upper third is very common, the upper third of the humerus or Mm -hmm. at the wrist joint. And so it did become, it did become more, there were stricter rules uh, for the second, the second contest. There were other stipulations, um, Like, please don't write more than this, more than seven pages. He eventually gets rid of that. Some of the men Mm -hmm. send in 20, upwards of 20 pages and other, other recommendations. Just give us sketches of your experiences or write essays on the triumph of the union or the cause or patriotism. So those weren't so much rules as suggestions there, there is one guy who I have not been able to find on any rosters and in any census, and it does make mm-hmm. me curious if he was perhaps an imposter. I don't know. So, if anybody mm-hmm. has ever heard of a D.W. Bynum from Ohio, please let me know, because yeah, he's I'm- the one guy. He could be a he could be an imposter. I don't know.
1: So we've got at least one possible hiding <laughs> out there. Now, you said that they they were required to write uh, about what what had happened to them, what regiment they were in, the battle they were in, what happened. Uh, and then some of them chose to write about their experiences at more length. And that's where this book is just a goldmine of tactical accounts uh, of, of the fighting at the front end. We've all you know, read Civil War battle books, and some of them – Go more into the the detail of individual experience than others, uh, but if you read someone's diary, you know you read 300 pages, and, and like they say about war, you know, uh, endless amounts of boredom punctuated by seconds of extreme terror. Okay. Um, here, you've got all a whole book of extreme terror, or at least of extreme intensity, uh, because these men, you know, in every account you read, is going to end with the person being shot in the right arm. Uh, so they're all up close. I mean, they describe you know loading the musket. They describe the the emotions they feel as they're fighting. Uh, they talk about the tactics, the formations they're in. I I just uh, was absolutely uh, enthralled by by the descriptions of these these people. Uh, were you expecting that kind of detail when you began reading this?
2: I. To a certain extent, seg- yes, because many of these men refer to the journals that they kept along mm. the way. One guy laments the fact that he can't give them specific dates because he, he lost his uh, – his knapsack was taken by rebel soldiers, so he lost mm. his journal. Um, I was hoping for deta- their, like granular details about their experience I didn't want to get my hopes up about too much graphic detail. And many of them kind of, you know, cover over a little bit the the horrors of what happened to them and, mm-hmm. and sort of just end with a And then I was shot in the right arm and I lost yeah. my arm. But many of them actually spend time detailing the horrors of, of, because many of them were wounded and didn't have their amputations until weeks or sometimes even months later. And so there are descriptions of, of, the depredations that arise from from lying on the battlefield for three days waiting uh with with your with your arm bleeding and all the the Mm -hmm. vermin around so because there is such an insistence in a lot of scholarship about civil war literature in particular but also just the uh, civil war americans and how they responded to the extreme violence and destruction that it was all about silence and uh about Covering over the loss in the interest of upholding the union cause, I was very pleased to see that many of the men, yes, they are extremely devoted to the, to the cause, but they are also, mm. they're also desiring to show us what's underneath that empty sleeve, right? The, the gritty details of their, of their experience and of not remaining silent. And, and some of them are writing while their wounds are still healing. So it makes a lot of sense that they would be still in it. And as you may, I mean, I am not a military historian. So mm. sometimes when they're talking about infilating and debouching, mm-hmm. I was, I, I'm not so great at picturing it. But well, I, reading their accounts, I was much more able to picture the movements in battle than I would be if I looked at a, a map, for example, that has the arrows pointing. Because we zoom in onto this one, this one unit, uh, mm-hmm. and their movements, and that they're on the left flank, or that they're they're having to shore up the defenses on one side. So I did all. Though I'm, like I said, I'm not a military, military historian. I did find that pretty interesting to get that really zoomed in perspective.
1: Yeah, I I, I, I do write that sort of stuff, and I found mm-hmm. it absolutely fascinating. Um, we're going to take another short break when you come back uh you you we can talk more about the uh, uh, uh about what you said the reticence the willingness of these soldiers to talk uh whereas other historians have argued that didn't happen till till a decade or more after the war uh and many other things i, I especially want to ask about uh, uh The the poetry and other essays uh, that soldiers wrote. So we'll come back and talk about all those things in just a moment. Our guest tonight, Allison M. Johnson, is the editor of The Left Armed Corps, writings by amputee Civil War veterans. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com self-improvement, career
2: advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics.
3: Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today.
0: that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Allison M. Johnson, editor of The Left-Armed Corps, writings by amputees, Civil War veterans. Uh, so, Allie, we were talking about the... Uh, The fact that many historians, uh, Gerald Linderman uh, is one you you reference, uh, wrote about how a lot of veterans didn't want to talk about the war immediately afterward, and we don't see writings, uh, we don't see the regimental histories being produced until the 1870s or 80s, the big reunions in the 1890s, but your evidence here shows this body of soldiers are writing in great detail. Uh, about the war, about the politics of the war, but also about the, the the experiences, the horrors of the war, and they're doing it within five years. Uh, they're doing it immediately. Do you suppose that's because of their unique status of, of being wounded that that they may have responded differently?
2: Well, it's always important to note that they're not a random sample. They they chose right. they chose to participate in this act act of testifying mm-hmm. to their experiences. And so we can't look at them as being representative of all all men who, who underwent amputation, uh, obviously. But it is clear that they, just as born, did recognize their membership in this unique group. And they call themselves the left-arm corps. That's not something mm-hmm. I came up with. That's a, uh, a title that Members gave to themselves and they signed their letters to born your left arm soldier friend or they even sign writings with just left arm because that's our left hmm. hand. So yeah, I don't, I think it's that they obviously had gone through a unique experience, but that that wasn't actually that unique because obviously hundreds of thousands of men had had participated and had fought, but they had lost the use of something that was considered so central to manliness and the ability to provide for your family and the ability to, I mean, to, they, they even talk about, you know, they've lost the hand that they offered to, you know, you, you plight your trough, your trough, not your trough, mm-hmm. your trough, you offer your hand to somebody, but now you don't have that hand anymore. What is that going to do to your viability as a, as a suitor or as a husband. So I think that that's partly why they're willing to participate. There are also cash prizes involved Mm -hmm. in the contest. And in the second contest, there were 10 premiums. You would get $50 each and you got a letter written by a, a general. So Sherman could, would, would, Sherman looked through all of the the submissions and picked the one that he liked the best and sent a letter to that to that winner same as uh Hancock and um Farragut so that was a added incentive to be recognized by the these uh extremely famous and well-known generals and ad- and admiral in the case of Farragut so I think that's part of it um but they're clearly invested in in preserving the memory of what they went through, and doing it immediately. And two of them actually pub one of the two of them publish well one of them publishes a an account of a battle, and then another publishes a regimental history in 1865 and 1866. So they're not waiting. They're not waiting until the 1880s.
1: One thing that came out in a lot of their writings, uh, a lot of it is, is tactical. They describe the battles they're in, the, how they were wounded, that I found fascinating. Um, but there's also, especially in their introductory remarks uh, or some of the essays they write, uh, a sense of dissatisfaction with how the Union public is responding to the veterans, that, that, that they're, they're not being treated well. Uh there's a suspicion that that now they're disabled, they're just going to be a, a sponge on society. Mm-hmm. Um, and did th- did you get a sense that there was a, a some dissatisfaction here?
2: Well, there was obviously anxiety about demobilization. And uh, at the at the ex at one of the exhibitions, Na- uh, General Nathaniel Banks, he starts off his speech by saying. We're all con- it, we're, there's concerns about lawlessness and criminal activity on the part of, of veterans, but the, these this contest and these contestants prove that we need not fear such things. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's clear that that many of them feel the need to present this level of self reliance. That there's a banner at the Con- are, are, it says on the on a invitation to the exhibition there's a banner at the exhibition it says disabled but not disheartened that's mm-hmm. one of the the slogans that goes along with the contest and, and is predominantly displayed and that kind of gives you insight into that they're pre- that this is supposed to convince the public that though these men have been mangled by their service that they're not going to be, as you said, a sponge on society. And so it's, they're having to negotiate that kind of, that kind of rhetoric. And, and some of them remain with their eyes on the prize and say, you know, I lost my arm, but the union remains. Others, however, do reveal how difficult the adjustment has been and are not completely on board with this overwhelmingly uh, rehabilitative rhetoric that the contests are trying to, um, trying to advertise
1: and And let me say about the book that each of the entries um, is I've been introducing you as editor and and listeners may think well just a a collection Um, you have researched and written about each of the people whose works you then present and so we find out something about who these soldiers were where they came from what they did where they fought and what they did after the war and the, uh, 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 some of them really come to bad ends.
2: Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're sort of the exceptions to the rule. I mean, I tracked down, except for that one guy who I mentioned who I could not mm-hmm. find, I tracked down, uh, all of the 333 contestants and many of them have, are, you know, their obituaries are glowing. They're members of the grand army of the Republic They are uh, officials in the Grand Army of the Republic. They are remembered for their service. Though there are, as you said, a few. uh, One young man, the youngest contestant in the first contest, who enlisted, he says, when he was 15, is the first man to be executed in Knox County, Ohio, uh, Mm -hmm. for shooting somebody on a drunken debauch, as the newspapers say. Another man, Josiah Phillips, he... Is murdered by his wife over a pension payment, but again these guys really stand out as oh and two men die by suicide. At least two men die by suicide, um, Doris Bates and Marvin Burroughs. So, and many of them die very young, for, probably just from infection. You know, I couldn't always track down the cause of death, but some of them get tuberculosis during the during their service. They they uh, die from complications from their wounds. So it was. Sad, you know, tracking down some of the men and and hoping for these bright futures for them, and instead finding out, no, he died when he was twenty nine from tuberculosis, mm-hmm. or uh, no, he ended up in an insane asylum as as one of the uh, contestants did. So and,
1: and yet, a surprising number of them live, uh, you know, past the First World War. They're into the nineteen twenties.
2: Mm-hmm. The oldest so. dies in nineteen thirty seven. So he is alive uh, when my grandparents. Were, were children <laughs> which is pretty impressive um and others yeah uh, uh, quite a few die before the uh, before the turn of the century but others carry on the memory you know they're going to the ger reunions um they the newspapers when they pass away like i said mm-hmm. comment on their service note always note that they lost a right arm they always mm-hmm. bring that up one one man's son, when he's running for a public position, I think for sheriff, the the newspaper article mentions that his father lost a right arm in the Civil War. He the, 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 the Anthony Beaver was the man, and he the veteran, and he had recently passed away. But even when his son is running for office, they use that, so it had this huge political cachet. Um, it seems for many of them who would go on to become ha- uh, members of the House of Representatives or. Prominent businessmen, um, though many remained farmers or uh, and and led quiet lives, their obituaries nevertheless marked or you know remembered them as as men who had sacrificed a right arm, the best part of themselves to the union.
1: These writings fall under different categories. You've organized them as such so that you have essays in one chapter. Um poems in one chapter some people wrote original poems uh uh I found one of them very striking uh sort of humorous uh, uh approach including the uh, uh the, you talked about puns he mm-hmm. <laughs> the soldier writes when uh when when the congress uh, when a politician says uh, two arms uh, I won't have to go because mm-hmm. he only has one arm. Uh, he spells it T W O arms, but uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, clever things in that poem. It, that well, asking, I guess, both as a someone who studies the Civil War, but also as a professor of English, were there any particular writings in here that really just stuck out to you? Uh, any bit. favorites that emerge?
2: The poem that you're talking about is by Thomas A. Perrine, and it's one of my favorites. <laughs> he he calls his collection or his submission "Sinistra Manuscripta," a sinister manuscript, <laughs> and his his poem, like you said, is full of puns. He says that he offered May a woman named Mayday his uh, his right hand, and she said it would not be wouldn't be right since he just all he had was the left hand, and um. He even compares himself to – he invokes sort of the lack of, of rights um, and suffrage for black men by saying, I might as well be black since I lost all my rights. So he's punning even – but but mm. still seriously commenting on the position of – well, in, in that case, he's invoking the Dred Scott decision. <laughs> but um, – so that was very interesting to me that he is comparing – the situation or his situation as a disabled veteran to the situation of the recently emancipated, formerly enslaved people. Um, and obviously not recognize well, I, I think mm-hmm. he would probably acknowledge that he has more rights than they do, but he's using that that pun to comment on his position and, and his newfound situation. Um, so that one for sure and these are the guys that I wrote about in my first book. So I wrote a whole <laughs> chapter on the poets uh, and mm-hmm. I was interested in how they really memorialize their missing right arms, but also turn to their left arms and, um, and focus more on their left arms than, than their, their uh, prosthetics. That's one striking thing about the contest entries as a whole is how few men talk about their prosthetic limbs. Some of them mm-hmm. couldn't wear them because they had lost their arms too close to the shoulder, mm-hmm. uh, but others were just – they couldn't use them because they were too painful. So they really focus on the left arm as this newly uh, – one man says that his left arm has uh, – on the battlefield, there was a sort of legal situation by which the left arm inherited all of the duties of the of the right arm. <laughs> An, another poet – Another w- poet des- describes, you know, asking the surgeon, "Where is my arm?" and the surgeon pointing over to a pile mm. of of them, and just this, that extremely disorienting experience of of being under the ether or being under the chloroform or not being under anything, and, and then awaking mm-hmm. to find that you have, are minus a limb.
1: Um, I, I one of the things that make reassured me is, in a way. Thinking if in another life I end up back in the Civil War, uh, one of the, one of the soldiers describes how how pleasant it was to be <laughs> anesthetized and then waking up it was it was you know a very pleasant experience. Uh,
2: yeah, he thought I've, he saw uh, General Mansfield. He felt like he was floating above everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that that was an int- I was interested to read that. Um, it wasn't the same for many of the the other guys.
1: No, no, that balances by, outbalanced by a lot of horrors. Well, unfortunately, we're at the end of our hour here, but I will say, listeners, if you want a really uh, different take on things, the writings by these soldiers, the, the tactical detail is uh it, it's fascinating if, if you enjoy that and are interested in it, as I am, uh, the human element of it, the the ideological element, the arguments they make in favor of uh, justifying their sacrifice. One thing after another, it, uh, listeners, you will, you'll, you'll like this book, The Left-Armed Corps, writings by amputee Civil War veterans, edited by our guest tonight, Allison M. Johnson. Allie, thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: Thank you. It was an honor. I appreciate it.
1: And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.